Man, so good to see all of you guys. How good was Cameron's message last week? I, I listened to it the other day. It was a beautiful message, and I was just really encouraged by it. I, I told Cam, I thought it was the best message he's given uh, at Door of Hope. I was really, was really proud of him. Uh, we're going to continue. He said in his message that he was going to explain to you what gospel freedom is. I said a joke like we're going to actually, from now on, we're going to try to one-up each other and just say, I'm actually going to tell you what gospel freedom is today. Uh, no, Paul is trying to help us understand what gospel freedom is. And we actually come to the crux verse, which is really what the whole book's about. For in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. The same word is used for the verb and the noun here. That's how strong this statement is. It was a strange statement. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, I want you to notice something right out of the gate, because we're going to consider today kind of three facets of what gospel freedom is. And, and Paul here, he wants us to get this, just like he wanted the churches in Galatia who had been drawn into this false gospel, what was being lost was not their salvation, but what was being lost was their freedom in the gospel. What we need to understand is that our salvation is derived not from what we do, but what for Christ has already done for us. Our salvation, just as, just as we cannot earn our salvation, we can't unearn our salvation. But what we do need to understand is that when we are regenerated and we receive the spirit and the more we grow into the likeness of christ the more free we become but the more free we become the more we responsible we become for that freedom and so as i say uh, if jesus if there's only one way to go that means there's a lot of ways to fall and that tells us something really profound something that paul wants the galatians to understand that freedom is a fragile thing it's a fragile thing. I mean, think about, as a parent, how we are with our children. When Hattie was first born, I mean, you know, as, a, as an infant, even as a toddler, even when she was three years old or four years old, I didn't send her across the street to Abernathy Elementary Park to play by herself. There was one family that sent their four-year-old to play by themselves, and I judged them consistently. Uh, <laughs> so, the, because I, I'm like, that's, they're not ready for that kind of freedom. They don't, they're not ready. They, with tight parameters uh, that, that was over them. But as Hattie has grown, by the time she was five, I let her go to the park with her brother, who was responsible for her. And as she was, as she was eight, I let her go by herself and meet friends there, because it was just across the street. And now she's 13, and I let her walk to school by herself. And it's really hard. That's even hard, because I worry about her. I worry about her safety. Do I let Hattie, at 13 years old, take an Uber by herself downtown to go shopping? No. But Henry, who's 17, he Ubers downtown by himself all the time. Freedom expands. But the more freedom our kids have, as long as they are under our roof, under our rules, they, that, th that freedom is always within parameters. And the moment you move outside of those, it's not anarchy. The freedom is actually experienced when you function within those parameters. I mean, if Henry was doing something that endangered his life, he was doing something that was, that was careless or, or illegal, uh, we would actually retract some of that freedom. We would, we would, the freedom's fragile. 
And so I, I think it's important for us to understand this, this place. Well, now, what is Paul warning us against? Because we read this book and we're like, none of us are returning to Torah. I mean, maybe some of you are, but most of you aren't. And, and we're, we don't tend to be in Portland a, 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 a city that's driven by extreme legalism. But that doesn't mean that the religious instinct is dead. Uh, a dear friend of mine, David Zoll, who put on the Mockingbird Conference, he just released a new book last week. It's a profound book. It's called Seculosity. And what he talks about is he said the pious instinct, the religious instinct is alive and well. What maybe once was collectively pointed toward one religion, maybe, maybe the majority of Americans had some sort of Christian basis. He's like, in the secular age, uh, it's, it's split into, into pluralism. And this, that religious instinct may not be vertical any longer, but the religious instinct is alive and well, and now it's just horizontal in a million different directions. And so how does he describe that? How does he describe religion? Because what Paul is trying to tell us is that our freedom in Christ is constantly at risk of being lost in our own attempts to justify our existence. That's the religious impulse. Listen to this quote from his book. He says, religion in real life is more than a filter or paradigm. It is what we lean on to tell us we're okay. That our lives matter. Another name for all the ladders we spend our days climbing toward a dream of wholeness. It refers to our preferred, I love this, it refers to our preferred guilt management system. Our small r religion is the justifying story of our life. Ritual and community and all the other stuff come second. He goes on to say, our religion is that which we rely on not just for meaning or hope, and I love this, he takes the word righteousness and he says, that sounds too religious. Let's use a word that our society has replaced righteousness with, enoughness. And then he goes on to say this, wherever you are most tired, look closely and you'll likely find self-justification at work. The drive to validate your existence, to assert your lovability via adherence to some standard of enoughness, be it behavioral or conceptual, given or invented. In other words, we have the, t the tendency to enslave ourselves again. We who have found freedom in Christ so quickly move back to some sort of attempt to justify our own existence. It is almost impossible for us to accept that there is absolutely nothing you can do to add to the alien work of God. That is the gospel. It's very difficult for us to believe. It was easy for me to believe when I first accepted Jesus. It became increasingly difficult to believe because my ego constantly tells me that there is something in me that's worth saving. <laughs> that I have some sort of role to play in my salvation. That God doesn't really love me and He's extremely disappointed in me. Not only that, but I often lose sight of God altogether because I am so consumed by the multitude of voices from our culture and our society that speak into our lives and offer us all sorts of alternative religions, 
things that we set our hearts and affections upon to give ourselves meaning and value, like parenting, like our spouse, like our career, like eating, like fitness. All of these things become means of self-justification and all of them exhaust us and all of them enslave us. Because here's the thing, is that we can't escape enslavement, but we can choose our master. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. And this is why Paul was very comfortable saying, I am a bondservant, a willing slave of Jesus, because Jesus alone as we give ourselves to him what god wants from you and i I want you to hear this today this is the key to gospel freedom the thing that he wants from you more than anything else is the ability to be responsible for you that's why jesus says come to me like little children what can a child offer for of such is the kingdom of heaven John Stott, notice this, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. John Stott in in commenting on this particular verse said, this freedom as the whole epistle in this context makes plain is not primarily a freedom from sin. I think this is really important. But rather from law. Whether it be the Torah or the law of our own making." That is our own justification, freedom from religion, really. What Christ has done in liberating us, according to Paul's emphasis here, is not so much to set our will free from the bondage of sin as to set our conscience free from the guilt of sin. The Christian freedom he describes is a freedom of conscience, freedom from the tyranny of the law, the dreadful struggle to keep the law with a view of winning favor with God. It is the freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Christ. What this quote reminds us is why we need the gospel every single day. And this is why Paul commands that we stand firm. Because sin is a part of our everyday earthly existence, freedom in Christ is a fragile thing. I just want to keep saying that. It's a fragile thing. Because we will quickly turn back to that default setting of trying to earn what is already ours. And you can't add to it. And you can't take away from it but you can short-circuit its powerful impact in your life when you choose to bring self-justification to the table. There's no room for it. Jesus has already provided a feast. Why would we add our garbage to it? It's like, it's like showing up. I got a picture like the f- Jesus invites us to come and have a feast with him, and there's this amazing meal. If you, if you guys have ever been to Ava Jean, just imagine... Just imagine going into Ava Jean, my favorite Italian restaurant in Portland, and just bringing a bag of McDonald's with you and just sitting down and just putting it right next to the plate of, of whatever it is that you're going to eat. That would be horrific. That's like, it's, it's almost as, as sinful as ordering a Coke when you're there. I mean, it's just not right. I mean, uh, which, is, which is something that I probably would have done when I met Darcy because I was pretty rough around the edges. Uh, so... Here's the thing, we have this tendency, this is the thing that I need you to understand as we consider this freedom, it's not talking about a loss of our salvation. Christ will not lose his grip upon us, but we can surely lose our grip upon him. And I think that that is 
so important for us to understand. Now, notice what Paul says here. He says, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is really profound. Once again, he's throwing something in that is really important for us to understand, is that what were the Galatians before they were Christians? Were they Jews? No, they're primarily Gentiles. And what were they? They were, they were pagan idolaters. And what Paul is showing them is he says, you were slaves when you were pagans, as pagan idolaters, worshiping false gods, and now you're going to be a slave trying to turn to Torah, which is the real law of God, given by God to His chosen people. But that law was temporary. Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. A new age has come in, and it doesn't matter if you turn to the actual law of God or your pagan idolatry. If it's not Jesus, you're lost. You've lost sight. Your freedom is gone. And so he basically says that pagan idolatry and biblical moralism are essentially the same thing. And I think that let that set in because there are many Christians that are far more comfortable with biblical moralism than they are with living in the freedom that Christ provides. It's our, our, our mode of what I like to call selective sanctification. The ways that we justify our existence to ourselves. So, the first facet of gospel freedom is union with Christ. Look what Paul says in verses 2-4. through four. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you are circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Let that set in. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you're circumcised, you have to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Do you understand the exegesis of this text? Let me give you the most accurate exegesis of this text. Men, if you're circumcised, you're lost. No, I'm just joking. That's not what it says. Oh my gosh, I thought that joke was so good in first service, nobody laughed. You're like, don't joke about circumcision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even I just got to look a little awkward because I had another joke that came to mind. I'm like, no, the filter in me, the Holy Spirit said inappropriate. And then I just stopped. I, I silenced the, that inner voice that wanted to go further, wanted to go so much further. The 11-year-old boy in me, that just wants to talk about inappropriate things. Um, no, that's not what it's saying. Obviously, uh, the issue is not circumcision. In fact, he goes on to say whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't serve anything. But what were they promoting? What were these false teachers promoting? And this is what we need to understand. They weren't teaching that circumcision was, was a, essentially a physical operation, nor even a ceremonial rite, but a theological symbol. It stood for a particular type of religion. So fill in the blank. Okay, it's not circumcision for you, but man, it could be romance. It could be your spouse, it could be your children, it could be your job. It, what, what he's saying is, this, is, this is the thing. It stood for salvation by obedience to a particular law. I am saved, I will find my enoughness if I do this. And he's, he's trying to blow all of those categories out of the water. And he's definitely speaking to us with the religious impulse within the church of saying, you're not saved because you read your Bible every day. You're not saved because you pray every day. You're not saved because you serve the poor. You're not saved because you do these things and these things. If it's not anchored in union with Christ, it's not going to 
satisfy you. You will find yourself enslaved. And whether, it's your, whether you're giving yourself to the secular impulses or even the Christian moralistic impulses, if it's not anchored in union with Jesus, it is, it is, it's, it's false. And he uses three very specific statements here that I think are really profound that we need to note. He says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, the power of Christ's presence in your life will not be felt or experienced. You are severed from Christ. Once again, Jesus doesn't lose his grip, but for sure, we seem to be able to let go of ours. The more freedom you have, the more possibility there is of going the wrong direction. Freedom is a fragile thing. And then he says, you have fallen away from grace. If there's one way to walk, there's a million ways to fall. This is also a very powerful statement around why we need each other so badly, why we need to be in community together to hold each other accountable to this call to continually preach the gospel to one another that we might maintain our union with Christ. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. This is essentially what Paul is saying. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. The great declaration of the Reformation. Tim Keller wrote, you cannot add to Christ without subtracting from him. I think that's a a, a statement that's worth noting. I, I was thinking about this when Door of Hope began, my dear friend Tony Simarusti said to me, he said, listen, Josh, there's anointing upon you, which just means the Spirit's presence is, is clear in you. But if you lose your anointing, if you stop abiding in Christ, you will be forced to rely upon your own cleverness. And it won't take you or the people that are a part of your community very far. And believe me, guys, there have been times through the history of Door of Hope, God in his graciousness, not letting go of his church, has worked in and through me in spite of myself when there were definitely seasons where I was relying more upon the flesh than I was upon the spirit. And you know what it led to? Exhaustion. I think back to when we moved into our last church. This has been a very different process. I worked probably 100 hours a week until that building was done. And you know what? There was so much pride in that. I was performing for an invisible audience. I wanted to prove that I was good enough, that I was a strong enough leader. And you know what? So many people offered to help me and I refused their help because I wanted it to be about my effort. And, and how was I rewarded with that effort? Frickin' shingles. Straight up scar shingles around from my belly button to the middle of my back. I'm going to show you guys right now. No, I'm not. Uh, they're horrible, though. These ugly scars is a daily reminder of how far self-effort can get us. And everyone thought the church was beautiful, and all I found was that I felt dead, and I was not excited. Uh, the, but you know what? God continued to work. That's the thing, the powerful reality of God's ability to continue to work, but it doesn't mean that we can't make messes of our own lives. It doesn't mean that we can't lose sight of our freedom. I lost sight of my freedom in Jesus because freedom in Christ is perpetual Sabbath. We're functioning in rest and from rest because he is with us. I like this. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Think about that. He's speaking that to a bunch of disciples. They're constantly fighting with each other about who's the greatest. 
He's speaking that to a group of disciples that uh, Peter specifically, who's about to deny him three times, he says, you're already clean. Because what makes them clean is his presence in their midst. What makes them clean is not their comprehension, but their apprehension that they are following the way, even though they don't even fully understand what that means. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit in by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me and so the question immediately that we must ask ourselves is do we live by law or do we live by gospel that's what martin luther said that a true theologian is able to always distinguish the difference between law and gospel the law I like David Zoll writes in his book, Law and Gospel, the law consists of words, but the gospel is a person. This is one reason Jesus was called the Word of God because God's entire revelation to humans is this person. So is Paul here saying that we can lose our salvation? Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. We weren't saved by what we did nor can we lose our salvation by what we do or do not do. It is truly is the alien work of God. This is what Luther meant when he said with great hyperbole in his letter to Melanchthon, sin boldly. I've often thought about that statement because I found it really confusing and I'm like, what the heck is he talking about? But as I read the whole letter and I see in its proper context, he's not encouraging Melanchthon to go out and sin. What he is saying to a man who was stressed out about what they were moving away from, which is justification by human effort. And he was constantly fearful that he might lose his salvation any moment. And Luther was trying to say, listen, your salvation doesn't have anything to do with what you do or do not do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already done for you. And until you understand that, until you understand that you can't add to it, that on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you, until you understand, and he even says in the letter, if you were to commit adultery every day of your life, and to commit murder, you cannot change the total and absolute complete saving work of Jesus Christ. But when you do understand it, and when you give yourself to it, you receive the Holy Spirit who gives you the ability to live in a new kind of freedom. Not the freedom to do whatever we want, but the freedom to do what is right. And so he is, with hyperbole, he says, sin boldly. He's just saying, you can't change the finished work of Jesus, is what he's saying. He's just really clever in how he says it because it really provokes, doesn't that provoke something in you? I almost felt weird saying it. Like people are like, yes! No, that's not what I If someone responded that way, I'd be like, you don't get what I'm saying right now. Just forget I ever said that. Um, I love this. Robert Capone wrote this. Grace works without requiring anything on our part. It's not expensive. It's not even cheap. It's free. Isn't it funny? People get, when the gospel's truly preached, we will immediately be accused of preaching cheap grace. Uh, having read through the works of Bonhoeffer, I think that, uh, once again, people take snippets out of context. Uh, cheap grace is not relying upon the total work of Jesus. It's recognizing that our union with Christ is based upon allowing Christ to be responsible for our lives. It takes incredible effort actually 
to daily surrender. The hardest thing I do is not the things that I do. The hardest thing I do is giving up control. That's the hardest thing I do on a daily basis. I don't like to give up control, do you? I'm much more comfortable following laws than living in the messiness and the, the weirdness of, of the freedom that comes with following Jesus because Jesus doesn't tell me where he's going so every day's either an adventure or a terrifying experience. And often it's those things mingled together. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice, Paul is saying, like, gospel freedom is allowing Christ, the right to be Christ in and through us, which is exactly where he takes us. If gospel freedom is union with Christ, gospel freedom is faith working through love. Notice the next, the next slide. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we, are, we ourselves eagerly wait. Actually, we could say gospel freedom is faith waiting for the hope of righteousness and working through love, because really there's two facets of faith he declares here. He says we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So, we're not saved by our works, we're saved by Christ, but our faith in Christ allows Christ, by His Spirit, to work through us in love. The power of that work done through us actually is amplified when we live with the firm expectation that the best is yet to come. In hearing Luis talk on Thursday night, what's so powerful about him right now is that he's dying. And that he spent a lifetime living fully for Jesus and presenting the gospel. Millions of people have heard the gospel through this man's lips. I love the pictures of him when he was a young man at his first, at the first festival in which he spoke to like 60,000 people, or I think more than that, probably like 200,000 people in the, in the city center of Bogota, Colombia. That was the first festival he ever, he ever was, a, ever led and, and just the power of the gospel being presented. But you know what's so powerful about him now is he has that same sort of vigor. He still, he loves to punch the air. When he, I, I feel like if I learned to punch the air, like more people would get saved. Like he, <laughs> it's really, <laughs> Luis just has this cool, it's like, it's so like, it just makes you want to go out and be a vehicle by which Jesus saves others. And, and just his deep love for the lost. And he, he, he says, as I've gotten older, I'm just a bigger crybaby because I just, People bring me to tears because I want them so desperately to know Jesus and I don't care. I'm dying. I'm in chemotherapy. I'm not going to even be here for another year. Like, so it doesn't matter to me. I'll be in the grocery store and I'll just turn around. He just shared the story how he just turned to this woman and, and, and just started telling her about how much Jesus loved her. And he goes, and she got awkward. And he goes, you know what? I didn't care because Jesus really loves her and I wanted her to know and she was compelled by that. I, I thought about this last week when I was in Texas, I just, Darcy and I have just been really feeling just the Spirit really working on, on our hearts personally, on our own holiness of taking our freedom in Christ seriously because we, just like all of you, find ourselves often enslaved to the pressures of culture, to our own religious impulses and instincts, the things that we, that we think bring value to our lives that often actually trap us. And we're just really going through, Lord, show us the things that just it's, I have, what did Paul say? I am free to do all things 
I'm, I'm, I have the freedom and permitted to do all things, but not all things are beneficial. And he goes on to say, I, he goes, I will not be enslaved by any of those things because he's already has a master and that's Jesus. And, and Darcy and I have been really just asking ourselves, where in our lives do we want to see just holiness manifested that, that it maybe isn't, where there's still the world just still has a bit of a stronghold? And one of the things for me is just getting over the fear of man. Now, you may see me up here every week, but that doesn't mean that I'm like this walking, bold communicator of the gospel in every public arena, but I'm trying to learn to be. Because if I believe, as you should believe, that Jesus meant what he said when he says, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and when, we, when Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, that those four words wield absolute authority, and we hear all the time from our pastors, oh, the gospel, this is hard soil. Portland's a hard city. It's a post-Christian city. People are indifferent to the gospel. People are disinterested. They're hostile toward the gospel. Let me just ask the question. If you have that view, do you have that view of Portland? And then let me ask the follow-up question, because if in your mind you said, yes, it is a hard place to share the gospel, it's a hard place to be a Christian, let me ask you the last time you have actually tested that. Because last week I made a decision when I got home that I would not go a day without inviting people, somebody, to come and experience Jesus. And it's literally for me as simple as I've just decided that I'm going to invite someone to church every single day. Now, here's the awesome thing. The awesome thing is that this week, I, I'm, I'm in the middle, and I'm in a very manic season right now because I'm in a decorating mode. And when I'm in a decorating mode, I'm a very manic individual. I just love, love, love to buy beautiful things for our church space. And Darcy said she's like jealous because I'm just buying so many beautiful things. She's like, it's not for our host, though. It's, everything's for the church. She's gone with me. She's like, it's so fun. We, you know, our, we both love design. And so uh, and when Door of Hope began, our whole vision was how can we create the most comfortable space possible to hear the most uncomfortable message possible? That was, <laughs> that's why I'm so excited to be back in our space. Is how do we create this beautiful space where people come in and are just like, this is so beautiful. But what's even more beautiful is the people and the message that's being presented. And it's compelling. I, I'm like Moody. I'll use any device necessary to draw people to the king. Uh, and so I've been to every antique shop in Portland this week, like Maven, uh, Urbanite, the, uh, what, what's the, you know, Selwood, uh, the Stars Antique Mall, uh, and just going to all these different places. And every place I've gone, I'm just like a little madman. I've got like pillows in my arms and framed artwork and and just tons of stuff and they're like what are you doing what are you buying and i'm like i'm like oh i'm renovating a church and they're like oh that's that's cool um what's it going to be used for that's the first question that people ask me <laughs> because i do have the unique benefit of being able to tell people i'm the pastor because it's the last thing on the planet they think I'm going to say. And it, just by looking at me. And I, in fact, when Luis Palau introduced me to this Chicago pastor uh, of this huge Baptist church on Thursday night, he goes, he goes ah, this is my good friend Josh. I know, he, he looks like a drug user and a criminal. <laughs> that's, that was an exact, that's how he introduced me. <laughs> and he goes, but he's really, he's really quite godly. <laughs> uh, 
I'm like, I love Jesus and those drugs, those hard drugs. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in there like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm renovating church. Oh, that, what's it going to be used for? For a church. And then they'll be like, are you a designer? And I'm like, no, I'm actually the lead pastor. I just really love doing this part of the building. And they're like, whoa. So I, I, several people are like, that's, that's interesting. And they're like, uh, what kind of church? That's the next question. And uh, I'm like, it's my church. No, I just, <laughs> come, come little children. No, just get really creepy and culty on them. It worked better when I had long hair and a big beard. Uh, but uh, um, uh, I'm just like, it's just a Christian church. And it's an awesome community. And we're 10 years old. And man, I just, like, I'd love for you to come. We're, we, our services are at 9, 11. So I've introduced probably, I would say, 10, maybe 12 people this week to Door of Hope. Do you know how many people were offended by that invitation? Zero. Zero people. In fact, it's actually, many people ask even more questions and are intrigued by it. And I found that people actually often will want to enter into even deeper, it's weird, it kind of leads into like weird, kind of deeper questions where they find out, I'm a, maybe because I'm a pastor, they like, you know, oftentimes those conversations lead to people wanting to open up about struggles they're experiencing. Uh, yes, have I ever ever experienced hostility in Portland? You know, in 10 years of Door of Hope, I've only had one woman ever be like blatantly rude to me about being a pastor, about being a Christian. But even hers, that was like the Lord just gave me such a heart for it. It was clear that she'd been hurt by something. It's like, it's not her fault. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have to take it personally. She's not my friend. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like, okay, it's fine. I'm not gonna talk to you anymore, but I'm like, shove it down her throat. Now, believe me, there is hostility toward Christianity, a certain brand of Christianity. Yeah, if you're outside a, a, a bar downtown with a sign that says, God hates sinners and you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity, that's probably not very fruitful. Uh, i yet to hear of any, but like, you know what, you're right, I need some of that. Like, that's not generally a response, because the gospel's good news, and it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Is sin real? Is eternal destiny real? Are people experiencing hell on earth and headed for real separation from God? Yes. But what draws them into the salvation that has already been achieved for them by Jesus Christ is when you and I recognize that our union with Christ leads to a faith that works through love. Because we have the hope of eternity, we know what we've been saved from. We know that we didn't add anything to it. We know that we can't take anything away from it. And we have been so blown away by God's incredible, gracious love toward us that we can't not talk about Jesus. That's where Paul got to. What I want for us as a community, for myself and for you, is that we would get to the place where we would, like Paul, say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Oh, no one anything, Paul wrote in Romans 13, except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It isn't until we accept love from him that we will begin to love like him. There's a man in the church that's been coming for a month, and, uh, and it's been really cool. He's never gone to church in his life. And he reached out to me. He's possibly here right now. Um, he reached out to me about a month ago and said, hey, I'm new to the church. I've never been to church, uh, and I'd love to talk with someone. And I, I think he just emailed just the general information. I said, I'd love to meet with them. And so I met with him at, our, at the coffee shop by my house. Uh, 
Nosa Familia on 21st and Division, and, and we, we talked, and he shared his story about how he, had, how he had basically been exploring Hinduism, and he read this book by this, this Hindu, I, don't, I guess a Hindu priest, and, and the, the spiritual leader, this Hindu leader, recommended Brother Lawrence's practicing the presence of God as a way of understanding what it means to be in contact with the divine. Because keep in mind, Hindus are fine with Jesus. It's just, Jesus is just another God to add to the pile of gods. And so, uh, so that led him, he loved that book, and it spoke to him, and that led him to John Stott's Basic Christianity. Now talk about the Holy Spirit, meeting a person where they're at. Um, and then that led him to talking to his friend that he worked with about where to go to church. And his friend said, he's like, well, based upon, I go to a church called Henson Baptist, but knowing you, I think Door of Hope is a better fit. <laughs> I wanted to call Michael and tell him that. It's pretty funny. Um, and then, uh, so he came here to Door of Hope, and, and uh, it, this is a great story. He said he visited another church that's like a Unitarian church that up on San, uh, Stark that says all paths lead to God, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I didn't like that church. They had, they had you greet one another in the beginning. I'm like, that actually happens at most churches, we just realize that Portlanders are so self-conscious, it's best not to make people shake hands, because they might read it wrong. Uh, so, uh, we, so I shared the gospel, I encouraged him to read through the gospel of John, uh, and, and, then, and then I followed up, and I asked if he would meet with me again. We met on Wednesday in the coffee shop, and we're sitting in the middle of the coffee shop, and, and uh, you know, people can hear us talking, and we're just, I just was sharing how much Jesus loved him, and he was just like, I'm ready, I just don't know what to do, I don't know what the next step is, I feel like I need to understand more, and I just said, I said, listen, you, we apprehend God's presence long before we comprehend it, because no one can come to Jesus unless the Spirit draws him, and you may be even here, like there's something about what's being said, and you've never even heard the gospel, and you're like, there's something true about what's being said, but I don't even know why, because it, Paul himself said, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And, and I'm like, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And he said, yes. Do you believe that he died for your sins? He said, yes. Do you believe that he rose from the dead? He said, yes. And I'm like, there's got to be a point where you become an eventual finder, not just a perpetual seeker. You have a lifetime to seek, but you, there's got to be a point where you start. Because we're told that we move from death to life. One must be born again. I think you're ready to be born again. Are you ready to be born again? And he said, yes. And I said, well, let's just pray right here. And we just prayed right in the, <laughs> right in the middle of the coffee shop. And he began to sob. He wrapped his arms around me, and he just held me. And I held him, and then it was awkward, and then... <laughs> it wasn't, buddy. I, if you're here, I just want you to know it wasn't awkward. <laughs> Humor is how I deal with my emotions. Um, it's so beautiful. Grace, 37-year-old man. The gospel saves people. It saved you. It can save your, your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your spouse, your child. It saves it isn't until we believe that he really loves us that we'll be willing to be conduits of his love. And see, the hardest thing for me and the thing I preach the most is that God really loves you on your worst day, but that's the hardest thing for me to personally accept. But when we refuse to accept it, naturally we move toward justifying our existence, trying to prove that we 
we matter. It's when we let go of all of that that we become truly free. David Zoll in Seculosity said this. He says, those who feel the freedom to fail tend to take bigger risks and pursue more innovative solutions to problems. I am reminded of a Christian understanding of service where those whose position before God has been secured, their acceptance premised on the work of Christ rather than their own, are free to love their neighbors recklessly, even at a cost to themselves. People who have nothing to lose are free to give away everything. What a powerful statement. My buddy Craig, who died of cancer, when he first found out he had a brain tumor and it was removed from his head, I showed up the day after um, in the hospital to visit him, and he had only been a believer for six months, and I walk in and we're talking, and he was so happy and joyful because he had Jesus. And he he just received the death sentence. Two to five years was the possibly even shorter. He made it five years. But I remember the nurse walked in, and he was so excited for the nurse to meet me. He said, this is my pastor, Josh. Josh, tell her about Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, I think they removed a filter is what they removed. <laughs> she was uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable. But one who has everything that this life has to offer taken from us has nothing to lose and everything to gain. It's when we become distracted by the ways of the world that we begin to lose our freedom. So I want to close with this. Look at this final statement that he says here. Gospel freedom is obedience to the truth. It's not just faith working through love. For what is faith? Faith is allowing Jesus to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. Faith is the Holy Spirit filling us with the adequacy of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, faith works through love and it moves us to obedience to the truth. Gospel freedom is obedience to the truth. Now listen to what Paul says. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Isn't it fascinating that an entire community can be taken away from the truth of the gospel and find themselves in bondage? It happens to churches all the time. When the gospel is removed from the church, when Christ becomes the unwelcome guest in his own house, when we replace Jesus with some sort of therapy therapeutic moralism, some sort of selective sanctification, do these things and God will accept you. We are in a dangerous place. If I ever do that to you, just kick me. Or maybe just tell me. He says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Notice what Paul is saying here is is simple, that it's actually much sexier to give people a bunch of steps on how to live a better life than it is to preach the cross. The cross is what offends. Jesus Christ crucified is what offends. Not seven ways to have a better marriage. Ten ways to find enlightenment. Create your list, whatever, your best life now. Whatever it is. He says, no, these people preach this. He says in another spot in one of his letters that the reason that they don't preach the cross is because they love the praise of men. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Literally become unsullied. I will not explain that statement. All right. 
So, you laughed means you watched it bad. You're a bad Christian. All right. The love of God is creative. Our obedience to the truth, this is a fascinating thing. What does it mean to be obedient to the truth? Because if we're free, why would we have to obey? And if, if we can't save ourselves by our works, then why would we connect obedience to the truth to our gospel freedom? But first of all, let's ask the question, what is the truth? The truth is twofold. On our side, the truth is we can't save ourselves. And until we realize that, we're going to be enslaved. The truth on God's side is that truth is not a composite of knowledge or information, but it's a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Our obedience to the truth is our daily dependence upon the living Christ who is the logos, the word in action, who is the truth. Our gospel freedom is obedience to the truth, continually recognizing that I cannot live apart from finding myself in Christ. If I reject the truth that I am incapable of saving myself, I'm a slave. If I reject that Jesus is the truth, I'm a slave. But gospel freedom is obedience to that truth, a daily dependence upon Jesus. Man, Paul speaks harsh words to those that would lead the church away from this gospel because God is after our joy. He wants to set us free from a guilty conscience. He wants to set us free from human effort and human achievement and the fear of man. He wants to set us free from our attempts to control and rule our own lives. And all he asks of us, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And how do we glorify God? By enjoying him forever. God is most pleased when his children Look to him like little children and let him care for them. Do you let God be responsible for you? You can't add to your salvation, but you can lose your freedom. You can lose your grip on the one who died for you and gave himself for you. How are you exhausting yourself through your own efforts? Where is your religious voice that lies to you and binds you and hides the Savior from you? Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. If you're weary today, I want you to come to him. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you.